Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a rad place to get cool, creative socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about nesting instinct and insane over-optimization impulses. Really, basically, about analysis paralysis and whether there are games where planning is more fun than doing. Rob, I know you are sort of going through a whole move right now and getting your apartment all nice, and I think that's maybe where this topic came from. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, So in the last couple weeks, I sort of hit a point with my... A housing situation where I was like, I need to like actually finish moving in here. Um, <laughs> yeah. And part of that was like, I was just sort of like living on a, like I had one chair uh, really that I could sit on. <laughs> I had no TV, um, oh, like, it, like no real table. Uh, so anyway, but part of the reason I didn't like have anything. And, and by the way, like my recording setup was, was super sad. Like it was like, there oh. were several overturned empty, uh, like Amazon boxes uh, that like <laughs> sort of created a makeshift workspace. Yeah. Um, I'm actually recording for the first time uh, from, from a desk uh, <gasps> where, where I've actually like where I'm actually sitting and things are at like the proper desk height uh, for things. Um, now, admittedly, this desk is jammed into a closet. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, hey, it keeps it out of the way. Uh, that's how that's how I'm looking at it. But no, but one reason, like, I totally hadn't really done much moving in uh, was because I was putting it off until I could do it right. I was I was like, I don't want to like I don't want to like just get stuff for the sake of having stuff. Like, I want it to be the right stuff, uh, yeah. and not in the Tom Wolf uh, like Mercury Seven uh, sense of the word, but sure. but but more like. Uh, or, or maybe in exactly that sense of the word. Maybe, maybe, maybe I was trying to yeah. like select the right furniture and shit for like uh, my own personal moonshot. Uh, but that's right. You're going into space with this. It's got to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it got me thinking about like how often I do the exact same thing in games, where it's like, okay, uh, I want to do like you know. A perfect example is probably in in wargaming, uh, where I have a weird obsession with logistics. Uh, and, <laughs> and three moves ahead listeners know this. Like whenever a game touches on like uh, the like on logistics, on issues of supply uh, and like movement of large forces along limited <laughs> limited tracks and roads, um, I just get I just get super excited uh, and actually <laughs> more excited. Like it, it like I'll get more excited about that than I will about, like, the actual, like, fighting that the game is really about. I'm like, no, no, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, but, but really, like, look at, I should, I should really make sure these depots are properly located and, and filled up with supplies before I do anything. So I'm just gonna spend the entire game doing that. Uh, and I do the same thing in, in, in a lot of games, uh, now that I think about it. I, I tend to be someone who, um, if a game gives me the option to make plans and lay groundwork for doing a thing, I will often do that at the expense of actually doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've i been thinking about this topic, you know, sort of since we picked it. And the first thing that came to mind for me was definitely sometimes 
my instinct towards being perfect in certain kinds of games, mostly racing games, will kind of ruin some of the fun for me. You know, I've been playing F1 2016, believe it or not, lately, which is like a pretty serious racing simulation. Like it's 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 not even Forza. Like I played a lot of Forza. Yeah. Even on, like, baby mode, this is really tough. Like, on very easy with all assists on, you could still totally screw up and not, like, place. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm starting to appreciate that perfection that you kind of have to have. Oh I, God, I, so when I play happy. Forza, yeah, I know. It's, I figured you might be, you might appreciate this. But, you know, when I play something like Forza, you can screw up a little bit. You know, I play on, like, medium with a couple of driving aids in Forza. Like, I'm not great by any means. Not not pro, not simulation level. But, like, you know, I, I do okay. F1, I definitely need, like, baby mode with every aid on. And I'm still kind of getting it. But I guess the, the sort of idea about perfection, like, even in a game where I don't need to be perfect, if I have that rewind feature, like, that are that's in Forza or mm-hmm. F1, you know, kind of serious racing games... That instinct to always rewind and do things perfectly will always be there. There's always that temptation like, oh, man, you know, I'm still in first, but that corner could have been beautiful. It could have been like the most beautiful corner I've ever taken in my life. So let's let's rewind and do it again. So races that are already ridiculously long will end up being even longer because I'm like, no, no, I got to I got to make that beautiful. I got to make that like sing, you know. So that's that's maybe my most perfect example of that. Oh my god! So that's like there's so many things here that that excite uh, that excite me and make me really happy. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think for me, I absolutely like abuse the daylights out of that rewind function. Uh, but the difficulty <laughs> level I play on in the F1 games, uh, like I think I usually only have like three at most. Um, okay. And so the problem is in like a I tend to, my races tend to be about a third the length of an actual F1 race. So like, uh, like, like usually like 20 some laps. Sure. Um, and like, there's, there's a couple interesting things about that rewind function. One is that it's sometimes hard to find a good place where you can actually get back into the groove. This is the thing about yes. F1 circuits, right? Is like you blew the fourth turn in a complex of corners, but really like your attack on that entire section of the, the racetrack began like 25 seconds earlier, which is farther than you can rewind. And so you're like, I just need to find the one place where the car was reasonably straight for like two seconds so (laughs) I can dive back in there. And it's the worst when you like do the rewind and then you blow it harder. Um, And then you're like, oh no, I completely screwed this up. Uh, But then it gets really, really tense when it's like, okay, I'm out of rewinds. I just, I have to, I have to be, what lap is it? How did I, oh God, it's only lap eight and I'm out of rewinds. Uh, Okay. I just have to be like flawless uh, for this rest of this race, which by the way, will just get harder as like my tires go off. Yeah. Um, but, it's uh, really intense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, damn, but, I'm, I'm starting to get there. Oh, you, you've this is this is perfect for this topic though, because really you're you're yeah. just you're you're just at the the cusp. Because the next thing, the the next two things that are going to happen, uh, first you're going to take off those assists. Um, oh. uh, and and actually, I I highly recommend uh, taking off um, braking assist. Okay. Uh, usually, um, I usually leave traction assist low, especially if I'm playing with a controller. Um, but, 
Um, breaking, uh, breaking is just a, it, it just, it, I think it ends up making it easier to learn the game, uh, in the long term, uh, if you're, if you're not yeah. doing breaking assists. Uh, but then you start thinking about, I wonder if my car is set up correctly. It feels, oh, man. it feels a little, it, it feels a little sluggish turning into that, turning into that last corner. I bet if I had a little more wing and maybe adjusted the brake bias, oh, it would, it would take that corner a little bit better. And there, that way lies madness. Uh, but it is a madness that like absolutely satisfies that itch we're talking about here. Yeah. The itch for the greatest perfection flying through these laps of beautifully rendered landscape. Yeah, I'm, I actually started playing it with no braking assist. I started playing it like as if it were Forza. Like, okay, you know, medium with some assists on. And then I immediately was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I need a little bit of, uh, of help getting there, but I can see it. I can see myself becoming not, not a gearhead. I don't think that's going to happen, but I can definitely see myself getting obsessed with this, with this game and with the, this idea of like just ever, ever increasing your efficiency and speed because it's tapping into my instincts as a runner too, right? Like yep. it's very much like the way Forza does, honestly, just in terms of, okay, okay. If I train a little bit harder, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get a little bit stronger. I'm going to be able to do X, Y, and Z a little bit better. You know, that kind of exactly what we're talking about in terms of over-optimization. Like, it's it's very much an instinct that lies close to my heart, uh, just with anything racing related, you know? So, oh, man, this is going to be an ongoing love affair, I think. We're going to talk about F1 many times um, <laughs> over the course of our podcast. <laughs> Before we move on from it, actually, I am a little curious. Um, yeah. So, I hated the 2015 edition because they kind of gutted it. Uh, compared to okay. like the the 2013 edition, um, like 2014 was phoned in uh, completely, and then I was like, okay, but the the next gen version, uh, current gen now, uh, 2015, that's going to fix everything, right? Right, guys? And it, like basically, <laughs> they were like, well, it works, and that was <laughs> it. Uh, and it was it was fine, but like compared to like what that series had been in 2013, like it was kind of it was kind of crap. Uh, it was, you know, a slightly better driving model, um, but they'd taken out, like, career mode, um, just a whole bunch of stuff that sort of, like, let you really embrace the fantasy of, like, Formula One. And I'm curious, is that stuff sort of back in the game? Like, can you be, like, Danielle Riendo, uh, like, <laughs> with your little national flag and... Uh, you're sort of driving in a virtual career, and they start you at, like, kind of a mid- or low-tier uh, team. Can, is that stuff back in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the whole first part of the game. Yeah, I, I made a little character. I You know, you you kind of have to pick from the available avatars. It's not like a Saints Row style, can, can you, you know, make your own character or anything. No. Oh, my God. I'm a little dude. sad about the not being a lady part. <laughs> I definitely had to be a dude. This but. is the other thing that's fucked up. Like, in the first yeah. game they made, you could be a girl. Really? Yeah, no. And they took it out? Jen Cutter uh, is is, is yeah. a friend of mine. She's been on Three Rooms Ahead. She's she's awesome. She's really she's into this great. stuff. The yeah, first yeah. year, they had basically all the speech files, I think, from like the um, uh, like the Grid series or something, where like it's yeah. sort of gender neutral. So you could have your race engineer call you by name 
in the oh race. Oh my god! So I was like, I had I had some like sort of uh, northern English guy calling me like, "All right, Rob, you got to bring it in now. Bring it in, mate." <laughs> uh, but you could also like totally put your name in as like Jen, Jen, or Danielle, and like that would <gasps> be a thing, and you'd be like a lady racer. Uh, and then yeah. they took that out, and then they just got rid of any non like current racer names or famous racer names so you can be like you can be like nigel uh but you can't be like nathan uh it's it's super weird that's that does make me a little sad like it feels like this is a very fully featured career mode and again i this is my first f1 so i don't have anything to really compare it to other than you know you you're definitely you make the you know you can create the name you pick an avatar you pick a team and a nationality and, you know, they, they start off with, like, you know, the characters come up and it's like, oh, hey, blah, 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 you're going to do your practice lap now. And, you know, you get, like, little phone calls from other racers and your agent and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, they're very, it feels very invested in sort of the fiction of you're an up-and-coming F1 racer. Good for you on this team, you know. So, ah, I'm sad I can't be a lady. That's, that's do, a Can you at least make them call you, like, Danny or something? I mean, I made up a name like Gorgeous George or something ridiculous, but they don't they don't really call you by name. They're just kind of, you know, oh, hey, you know, oh, <laughs> they don't really go out of their way to actually like do any speech yeah, this parsing is, this or is anything. The painful part. And this is why, like, secretly, I think the the first game or the second game they made uh, is probably still my favorite because that was the one where like. Like, I was Rob Zachney, Formula One yeah. driver, and it was really, really yeah. good. Um, <laughs> but I think the other thing, like, to that optimization point, um, you know, if you've ever just done time trials in a game like this, what's interesting is just, like, you always think of one more thing you need to do or watch for, right? Like, first you realize, like, oh, I can totally, like, set a faster lap. But you can do that by, like, shredding your tires over the course of a single lap. <laughs> like, you yeah. basically cross the finish line in, like, a cloud of billowing, like, brake and rubber smoke. <laughs> um, and, like, yeah, okay, that sets a fast time. But then the next time around the track, you realize, like, oh, my tires no longer have any grip left. Like, this car is basically <laughs> dipped in butter. It's um, done. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you're like, okay, I need to, like, set faster laps, but they need to be, like, gentler. Like, somehow I need to, like, drive yeah. less hard but end up faster and that never stops. And so like, yeah, like this is, that's a, that's a game where like I will sometimes just be out on the time tile trial track and just like, all right, just want to see like if I can keep making those times fall. And like, man, when you get into that groove where like you've sort of figured out the track and like each time around you're a little bit faster. uh, It's so good. Yeah. That's an amazing feeling. Again, it's tapping so deep into my runner instincts of like, yeah, we want negative splits. We want negative splits. You know, like being out on a on a re- on a physical, not physical, but but like a a people racing track. Are you on? Are you on like, PS4? Yes, I am. Okay, maybe I should maybe I should pick that up and we can we could race. All right. Well, anyway, um, I mean, you're gonna kick my ass. I I am baby 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 racer right now, but I. It's tapping in deep. I can tell this one's going to last a while. So, yeah. um, in, in, in an experience I am still bitter about years later is uh, I helped <laughs> PC Gamer uh, with their review, but their reviewer was uh, Andy Mahood, uh, who was a professional race driver at one point. Wow! Um, and so I was in a multiplayer session with him, uh, Corey Banks, and uh, Logan Decker, who was editor in chief of PCG at the time. 
Um, Logan was hopeless. Uh, I think he ended up basically like doing donuts in the grass for like the entire race. Um, and so like trying to do a race between me and, and Andy. And the thing is like, he was good, but I think I might've been a little bit better. Um, and so like, we're, we're like in this neck and neck duel. It's, it's only like a four lap race. And I think we lapped the, I think we lapped every, every human driver in the field. Uh, but so we're like going neck and neck. Um, and then like, basically there's this chicane and it's the last lap (laughs) and he just straight lines it. Like he goes straight over the grass. Cause, cause when Logan had set up the, uh, set up the, the race, he turned off all rules enforcement. Um, so like we're racing and I'm like, I'm obeying the rules, but like, there's no referee. Like God is dead in this game. Oh my <laughs> and so God. like just puts the hammer down, goes like rocketing over the grass, uh, like jumps the curb, uh, and pulls out like a five second lead on the last lap and like takes <gasps> it home. I was so pissed. Uh, and I'm bringing it up like five years la- later. So I'm still, I'm still <laughs> so pissed. Um, I would be pissed. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not like, I'm like, you cheated. You're a dirty cheater. Um, doesn't count yeah yeah i would be mad too <laughs> uh but it was still really awesome though to be like in that sort of neck and neck like moment with a professional driver uh yeah. which was which was really really cool uh if the net, net code had been better i think we both would have done better but uh instead there was a little bit of warping uh involved in the race anyway uh mm-hmm. but yeah that, that whole impulse toward uh, getting things right, getting things perfect. Like, does it manifest anywhere else for you? Like, I find RPGs, uh, I tend mm. to, yeah. like, I'm someone who sort of likes to delve into the inventory and just mix and match different pieces of equipment and see, like, eh, is this, can I maybe, like, have a character that's, like, a little more my play style? Um, yeah. Stuff like that. I tend to get really hooked on that as well. Yeah, I it also manifests for me in something like this is kind of a weird reference, but games where, you know, you can get sort of like a bronze tier, silver tier and gold tier on, you know, something on a completion. I will always want to get that perfect oh, tier. Yeah. And a game like Boom Blocks, this is the weird reference that I'm making, but Boom Blocks and its sequel which I honestly think are maybe two of the greatest Wii games ever. They they were really kind of fantastic puzzle games, actually. Um, the single player modes in those games and the and the sort of cooperative, you know, two player modes in those games kind of always had that. And it was always about completely optimizing your strategy so that you could, you know, take down this structure with one ball or t- you know two throws kind of thing and figuring out how to get things absolutely perfect and that absolutely perfect throw to bring down a giant structure of blocks or, you know, whatever it was in that scenario. Because, you know, that's kind of how it began was like structures of blocks. But then there were also like explosive blocks and blocks that became invisible and blocks that did other, you know, kind of iterations on the, the very simple mechanics. I became obsessed with getting like all gold medals on every single level. Uh, to the point where I remember playing this game, oh God, you know, when it came out, but, but like during a weekend with a friend and we would just take turns trying to get the perfect throw on something or get the perfect, you know, the absolute optimal way through a level on every single level. And it was 
the most joyous magic. Like it, it was just the most perfect way of playing that game, even though it sounds like a, such a kind of stingy way to play a, a, you know, what looked like a very casual game. But man, it was great. It was like solving a puzzle the most perfect way, and it was so satisfying when it actually happened. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a little ambivalent about stuff like that because I think what bothers me is I tend to get obsessed with it on my first time through rather oh, than viewing yes. it as something to revisit. So, like, um, like Super Meat Boy, I was always like, no, mm. I got, I just, I gotta get the, I gotta get the, the medal, I gotta get the achievement. Um, yeah. like just, um, World of Goo. Uh, oh, World yes. of Goo was good yeah. enough. Actually, I did sort of force myself to get over that once I realized I wasn't going to be able to like um, get the achievement on on every level. Uh, but when I went back, then every time I, I sort of would drive myself nuts in that game because um, I had to like make the most efficient structure. Uh, yes, you know, of I had course. to make the most like I had to I had to allow the most goo to escape. Um, and eventually I'd sort of end up making it kind of burdensome uh, to to play. Um, there, there's a game that you should be careful of. Um, it's I think I think it's on early access, but uh, Polybridge. Oh a, yes. Have you played this? I have. Yeah. I've only dabbled for like a little gameplay okay. video, but yes. Oh my god. Yeah, don't yes. don't look too don't <laughs> don't stare too deeply into its eyes. Uh because yeah, it's like first <laughs> it's like, huh, building this bridge they want is kind of challenging. Interesting, huh? Okay. And then it's like, oh, I could if I make a lighter bridge and a cheaper bridge, I'll keep more money. And then you're off to the races. It's like how like minimalist can I make this bridge and still satisfy the structural requirements? Um, and it becomes like really maddening, but also really satisfying. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, yeah, that that was a dangerous one for me for sure. Just even even dipping my toe in, I was like, oh, I see, I see what's going on here. <laughs> I could lose my life to this game, you know? Yeah, it's very, it's a weird thing, right? Like it's. It, it's hard to, um, it can be hard to, like, engage in these games fully without, like, honestly kind of losing your mind a little bit. <laughs> if you have the right personality, like, it sounds like we both do uh, for this kind of stuff, it can really be like, oh, shit, watch out, you know, <laughs> oh, there goes 10 hours of my day, you oh, know, yeah. to making the perfect whatever in whatever game. So, yeah, like, it, do you do you ever think about that, like, the danger of this instinct? Oh, yeah, like constantly uh because it's not like it, part of it is because it's like you're well if, if you're starting to scratch that itch what if you just keep scratching it you know what i mean like it's not good yeah. for you to give into that because it's a little bit um to an extent it's it's kind of fun but to an extent there is this element of like weird compulsion about the entire thing and it's like is it is it necessarily a good thing to sort of feed that feed that urge uh i don't know uh the other thing that that tends to jump out at me um you know in a game like in, in a racing game it's not so bad because like ultimately uh everything is sort of directed back at the track and you you sort of have to play the game ultimately your, your measure for success is just you know those times um yeah in strategy games i often find that i will start doing this at the expense of the real goal a perfect yeah. example, there's two games, uh, like board games, that I tend to, well, tabletop games, uh, that I tend to play pretty badly. Uh, and one of them is a game called Splendor, 
Uh, and the other game is Seven Wonders. And they're both ultimately about sort of collecting production resources and using those to gather sets of cards that will be scored differently at, at the end of the game. So the smart thing to do, obviously, is just go after like collecting the most valuable cards and just doing like the minimum amount you need to do in order to maximize uh, the, the scoring cards uh, that you have at the end of the game. Okay. Eas- easily said. Yeah. The problem is, these are also games that allow you to sort of scaffold your production resources uh, up to very high levels to the point where um, you could, at a certain point in both these games, uh, just stop worrying about how you're going to pay for anything at all. Uh, because you'll, you, your, your pipeline will be so full at that point. Uh, that like literally every, every time the, every time play comes around to you, uh, you can kind of just do whatever you want. Uh, you have limitless options. Um, and I tend to just play for that. Like that tends to be, that tends to be my absolute fixation. Uh, because that's kind of like, that's my dream. I'm like, well, you know, like if I, like this is the card I should take. This is the scoring card. But if I take this other card that produces like three whatever, um, then I'll have, you know, it's totally like I've just taught myself to fish and I'll fish for a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is those games end before that, you know what I mean? Like, it, like I'm like, no, 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 it'll be great. And then, yeah, if the game was endless, uh, it would be great. Uh, but the game isn't endless, and I need to actually focus on the actual objective of the game I'm playing. But instead, I end up giving myself this different objective, which is construct the richest and most efficient production pipeline that will allow you to do things later. Um, and later turns out to be after the end of the game. Oh my god, yeah. I... I totally see that. I can totally see, like, no, I have to, I have to lay down the perfect roots, and then it's just kind of like, oh, okay... Um, I, I've played Seven Wonders and I, God, I haven't thought about that game in years, but now I'm, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I remember feeling that way about that game as well, <laughs> for sure. But, oh God, I'm trying to think if I, if I kind of do this in any other sort of management sense. Um, and, and I don't think I do. It's, it's weirdly specific for me to, to games about sort of like efficiency and action. Like like racing or like a, a puzzle game or you know like yeah. in, in case of boom blocks a, a sort of like actiony puzzle right. game so I guess I guess I'm lucky in that respect but uh, I, I, I <laughs> lucky quote unquote you know <laughs> yeah where where it's really gotten dangerous for me is uh, as I've been moving into this place um, the TV I'm getting has kind of a crappy sound system. Um, oh, like it's no. got a really bad speaker basically. And you can't, yeah. you can like either hear what people are saying on a TV show or you can like be deafened by the music. Uh, but mm. like, you can't do both. Um, like, <laughs> like it's, it's terrible. Oh, I hate that. Um, but so my solution was like, all right, I'm going to get, I'm going to get speakers and an AV receiver. And then I started reading reviews. And then I went to audiophile websites to find out what the good things were. Uh, And then it was just like, it just never stopped. Like, I just like, it it just kept, it's like, it's like the, it's like the rest of the army of the czar retreating deeper into the, into the, into the Russian countryside. And I just kept like pursuing it. It was like, no, I just, I just need like what started as I just need a decent like speaker setup. 
so that I can like play games and watch movies and not like hate hate myself turned right. into yeah. a yeah but really I need I need an AV receiver that will do music and uh surround sound uh just about equally well but also it should be <laughs> future proofed I don't have a 4K TV but yeah it should really have the 4K output good good decision <laughs> Rob uh you, yeah. future Rob will really thank me uh and then <laughs> like I knew I'd gone I knew I delved too deep and like awakened the uh, the audio Balrog oh, um, no. when I read this offhand remark in a like a what hi fi review of uh, one of the AV receivers that was in the was one of my finalists that was like wow this does music about as well as any AV receiver you're gonna get and I was like cool okay so I'll get that one awesome <laughs> but of course none of them do music really well oh no For that. You need a stereo receiver, and like, like, like immediately, like my my pupils dilated, and I was just like, <laughs> stereo receiver. And they and they helpfully linked me to their favorite one, oh, and then good. I was like, but but does that mean I have to have a separate speaker system? How do I make how, how am I going to make this work? And then I found myself looking at diagrams of the ways to lay out an AV receiver setup with a stereo receiver setup. And these diagrams looked basically a lot like really complicated circuit diagrams. Uh, and the analogy isn't completely wrong because like, there's a big like note of caution. It's like, remember with this setup, while it might be the, mo- the easiest to use... Uh, if you ever forget to turn them on or off in the correct order, uh, they could feed electricity back to each other and basically oh take God. each other out. Oh, and my God. Like, yeah, but I'll bet the music sounds really baller. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's like, I just like, I, I was like, no, like clearly like, I'm like now that I know that an AV receiver can't do music as well as a stereo receiver, like that's just, that's a piece of garbage. I'm not listening to music on that piece of shit. Uh, like it's fine for movies, whatever, but clearly like if, like for someone of my elevated musical tastes, I need that yes. stereo receiver because don't my ears deserve the best? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Like I don't. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm probably not going to hear that difference, or I'm not going to care. Uh, but knowing that theoretical, like that theoretical perfect is out there, like I just kind of can't stop pursuing it. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and for whatever reason, you talking about getting this perfection and and future, pu- uh, future proofing your setup made me think of the time my mother bought Titanic on VHS twice. In the late 90s, she made sure to get the widescreen edition as well as the regular edition because of, and I quote, one day I'll have a widescreen TV. It was, it was a beautiful I mean, beautiful she wasn't moment. wrong. <laughs> no, she wasn't. I mean, it's just at that point, yeah. it wasn't VHS anymore. But you know what? She, God bless her. Oh she, my God. She, she had a beautiful instinct. That's, oh God, that's great. <laughs> We still have the tapes oh, somewhere in this beautiful house. Um, yeah, that's oh, well. The, that's really good. The thing is, like, eventually these impulses like totally ruin your life too. Because like a few like a, a few months ago, I had this realization. I was like, "Huh, Spotify is great. It's got all the music I want, and it sounds pretty good." I bet I don't even need to buy MP3s anymore. 
And then I listened to like some of the same music on my MP3 collection and did like side by side comparisons of that with like the Spotify versions. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, Spotify is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yep. Yeah. And then you're, then, yeah. So this, this impulse never leads you to good places, but it does like before it consumes you, this impulse drives you to do cool things. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it drives you to play games better. It, it drives you to like figure out how things work, uh, which is kind of one of the big reasons we do this. Yes. And that's, that's great. But the problem is it never stops because you could always be a little better. And, if you become obsessed with that, like it slowly leeches the joy out of what you have and what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really like, I've been watching the magicians as well. And it feels like a spell on that show because everything in that show is about how magic is like, not always sunshine and rainbows and it comes at a great cost and that sort of thing. It just feels like an efficiency spell that, you know, it goes wrong always if you don't sort of counter it with another spell. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, is that going to be re- your weekend project? Because I have I have feels about that. Yeah, I was thinking. Oh my god, this I just said feels on ironically. Oh, oh. Oh, it's okay. I have Danielle. I have considered thoughts and criticisms <laughs> of the magicians. <laughs> they both sound great. I can't wait to hear them. <laughs> well, I guess that's probably a good place then for us to move into our mailbag, since we, we're already getting excited about weekend projects. Yeah, uh, but first. But first, of course, a word from our honored sponsor. Okay, so I don't know if I should wear my neon green socks with the pink stripes or the neon blue and pink ones. And this is for my upcoming run today and my feet have to look really fast. Your feet have to look fast. It's totally a runner thing. Um, And that's why I'm excited about Bombas. These are rad socks that come in all kinds of cuts and colors and styles and they donate a pair to a homeless shelter for every pair purchased. Okay, that that sounds pretty cool, but I'm 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 still kind of hung up on the whole my feet have to look fast for me to be fast thing. But you are the expert. It's running is Yeah, I mean running is very psychological. It's totally a thing. But speaking of bombas, if you go to getbombas.com/weekend, you get 20% off your first order and your feet can look fast. Okay, so it's getbombas.com/weekend. And I guess you should do the neon green socks today. They're very zippy. Thank you for helping with my dilemma. All right. So we have some amazing letters this week, actually. And our first one comes from Alberto. Alberto writes, hey, R&D. Like Rob, I too recently moved to Southern California and it's been car culture shock. I lived most of my life in the Netherlands where the bike is considered as important a mode of transportation as the car. As a kid playing 90s, uh, in the 90s, playing SimCity 2000 in the Netherlands, you can imagine how strange it was for me building cities with those six-lane strodes, look it up, you guys build here, without any ability to build bike infrastructure or even pedestrianized streets. Moving here has really cemented how different my perception of how cities can be structured is from many Americans, Will Wright included. It also concerns and frustrates me. Car-centered U.S.-style post-war cities are terrible for the environment and can be very alienating when you're not in a car. Unfortunately, SimCity was such a seminal work that even now, city builders repeat the same gameplay formula. 
This is based on 1960s urban planning principles of land use, zoning, and prioritization of car traffic flow over everything else. It says a lot to me that even cities' skylines, which does model bikes and pedestrian traffic and was made by a European studio, places bike and pedestrian paths in the decorations tab instead of in the roads and streets tab. Biking, walking, and public transportation infrastructure are also unlocked much later in the game instead of being an important initial tool. Isn't it almost irresponsible for developers in an age of anthropogenic global warming to keep normalized this worldview of planning cities for cars instead of people? Why don't we have better tools and metrics to help us build more pedestrian, bike, and public transportation-centered cities in city-building games? That's a very good question. Um, and it's something that I haven't, uh, I haven't owned a car in uh, a city in a very, very long time. I had a car a little bit uh, in San Francisco, and it is a, a wonderful convenience at times, but man, do I love walking everywhere and taking the subway everywhere. It is, it is just really, really nice. Other than the, you know, occasional time where you need to go to Ikea or something, or, you know, you have a massive grocery load or something like that. I, I really enjoy being unburdened by car ownership. Um, and it really is just not a reality in most places in the U.S. Like most cities, I'm actually visiting home right now in Rhode Island, and you could not live without a car here. <laughs> um, public transit barely exists. You know, there are buses, but they're not great and they don't go everywhere you need to go. And it really, it really does sort of drive home how much all of our, our, our world here in America is like, yep, gotta have a car. You know, even growing up as a teenager, having a car is like the ultimate symbol of freedom, right? And it's like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up. We uh, kind of have this little thing called global warming, and that's uh, it's not doing great. It's not it's not doing the best things to our planet. So, uh, yeah, I think we could possibly do with an attitude change. And um, I don't know w what that means for games, honestly, because I, I do think Alberto is correct in thinking that SimCity is just so much, you know, the the seminal work, as as he says, that, that people are not necessarily going to change the model radically, but it it would make sense to do so, potentially. City builders generally should maybe recognize more that, like, building mid-century American cities isn't, like, the be-all and end-all of, like, city yeah. builders, right? And, yes, even to an extent, even city skylines is... Like that, although city skylines, I, I think it maybe it gets a little bit of a bum rap in this in this letter, uh, because so much of city skylines, like the the end game for a lot of city skylines, is actually to sort of reduce the importance and emphasis on uh, your road network uh, yeah. for for moving your citizens around. Not goods, uh, goods generally like. You know, like factories need trucks taking stuff off the off the factory grounds. That's just that's just reality. Uh, but what you end up doing in your downtowns in city skylines a lot is sort of de-emphasizing roads, uh, emphasizing uh, public transit, uh, bus routes, um, just sort of network, and that's really really satisfying. Uh, but I think the other reason it tends to prioritize roads is roads are easier to represent from a city builder game perspective uh, than say a walkable neighborhood uh, because like constructing like walkable spaces um, isn't really a macro level thing the way yeah. city builds like city builders exist in this realm of like 
you're designing a greater metro area. Uh, and from that perspective, like where are the highways going to run? That's a really, really important question. Uh, how walkable is this city? Uh, isn't a question that's answered over the, like, you know, the, the five mile end to end main drag. Um, the, the walkability is something that is, is sort of decided like, you know, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood. Um, and I think that's kind of tough for some of these games to represent. Like, I think City Skylines struggled with it a little bit. I, when I play a game like, um, it's not Roller Coaster Tycoon, but it's sort of its successor to it. It's, oh, a, it's on yeah. early access. I I played it not that long ago. Uh, but designing with pedestrian walkways and like handling people flow uh, was a huge pain in the ass. Uh, and that was a game that was like entirely concerned about that. Uh, but it's just it's a very it's it's a very nitty gritty problem uh, that that you sort of have to dig into and do a lot of like ship in a bottle uh, type building and design. And I think city builders kind of struggle with that. And ultimately the results aren't as visually amazing because what people I, like, I, I think kind of one of the draws of a city builder is that you build like an awesome, badass like metropolis, right? Like sky, like literally skylines is in the name. Uh, and you know, what doesn't have a skyline is a decent mix of, like <laughs> medium density residential housing and uh like local local businesses uh yeah. ar arranged in arranged in a neighborhood uh that's that's not as that's that's not a huge payoff uh i think it's harder for the game to sort of design mechanics to support and i think it doesn't necessarily help the marketing with things so we end up not seeing it uh that said absolutely i think it does need to be more of a thing because at this point um yeah like for a lot of reasons uh the future needs to be about like less car driven cities uh denser cities um more affordable cities uh that's the you know like someone who uh lives in boston lives in los angeles uh may one day live in uh in the bay area of california yeah. um like cities are becoming uh, very stratified, um, yeah. where the people who actually do the work to make a city function uh, can't afford to live can't, in the city. Can't live there, uh, yeah. And the people who do, uh, it's kind of a huge open-air amusement park. Um, yeah. And that's that's a mess, but that is also driven by the way we plan and lay out our cities. Uh, and so I think that's that's another change that's that's going to that's going to happen. And I do think that one part of that, like in in their small way, city builders are telling us how cities are built, they how how they are constructed, like how do people in urban spaces live, and if they don't prioritize things like, uh, you know, housing availability. Um, access to public transportation and reasonable distances from like neighborhood to neighborhood. If they don't emphasize any of that, uh, they do end up basically modeling, uh, a, a form of city construction that is increasingly outmoded and irresponsible, uh, for the needs of modern society and for, uh, you know, the modern environment. Yeah. I definitely want, you know, bike utopia 2016. That's, that's the city builder out. <laughs> that I want to build now. It's it's definitely a, a huge culture shock here. Uh, at the same time, though, it's like really dense parts of Northern Europe 
ended up being super walkable and accessible because that's kind of the constraints under which they were originally designed. And that's not to say like that a lot of decisions weren't made in the car era to sort of restore their walkability and to sort of restore the bicycle uh, and the pedestrian to sort of a place of primacy over the car. Uh, But at the same time, like you were in a place where you could do that. Uh, Los Angeles. uh, Yes. Some decisions (laughs) were made a long time ago uh, about the way the city would be constructed that sort of guaranteed it would be it would be a car uh, a, a car driven city, but at the same time, like America's huge, and yes. ultimately, like everyone wants a little house for themselves, a little space, a little privacy. Um, when a lot of American cities were built, uh, it was about the dream of escaping urbanization, um, yeah. and that sort of informed the way things went down. Uh, and in retrospect, in, in some ways, it was a mistake. Uh, in some ways, it was short-sighted, but at the same time, like, American cities look the way they do for a lot of reasons. Uh, yeah. And uh, I don't, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as easy as these are, these are, these are foolish cities. Uh, they, they're, right. they're unsustainable. Um, they, they're suited, they, they, they were suited to their place and time, uh, and they do need to evolve. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm all for that. Uh, anyway, so we got a few letters about our a weird detour uh, from a previous show. Oh, yeah. Uh, and our first letter here is from Ed in Leeds. Uh, and Ed writes, Hi, Weekenders. I have a feeling you might get a few letters like this. <laughs> we did. Uh, but mm-hmm. here are a few notes on the old <laughs> Worfian hypothesis. Uh, as far as my memory served... Many facets of the Worfian hypothesis relied on somewhat spurious observations of indigenous cultures. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, instead of just writing what was memorable to me, I had the foolish idea to actually do, or rather redo, redo my research. Uh, (laughs) The thoughtless alternate universe version of me would have brought up what I considered to be the most famous rebuttal of the Worfian hypothesis, that being Steven Pinker's concept of mental ease. In short, this is the idea that the brain has an internal language that represents thoughts and ideas in some kind of pure form. Uh, This is given to explain how words that are spelt the same or phonetically identical can be interpreted differently. The concept described by the letters and sounds that make up language are internally differentiated from the concepts themselves. In essence, I agree with this basic conception of the relationship between language and thought. Unfortunately for Pinker, so too does Worf. Uh, despite being presented as contradictory to mental ease, many of Worf's, Worf's writings acknowledge this interpretive relationship between expressive language and internal thought. Uh, it seems to me that the points that are frequently lost in conversation on the Worfian hypothesis are these: the impact of the environment on language and thought, and the, the impact of environment on language and thought, and the emergent constructions allowed by human language. Uh, you guys had a great example of this in last week's show, the tribe whose only cardinal points were up and down the mountain. Uh, obviously, this is a reaction to the environment that this culture and language have evolved in, but I find in most cases, these facts tend to grip the imagination due to an unexamined sense of exoticism. Hmm. Uh, regarding the emergent properties of language, consider the oft-abused fact that Russian contains no word for blue. Uh, this is another odd tidbit that only seems that seems only interesting as far as an English-speaking audience will interpret it as alien or other. Realistically, though, much as your English speakers can distinguish p- between duck egg blue and sky blue, etc., I would find it highly surprising if the Russian language had no way of expressing a specific blue-like color. 
it seems like a lot of these titillating linguistic omissions rely on mistaking the symbol for the symbolized. Uh, and maybe we should just read the other letter because it's another it's another note on the on the Warfian hypothesis. Uh, yes, which I think that's an excellent idea. A lot of people were pumped to talk about. Yeah, they they sure were. I'll uh, I'll take this other one. Yeah. All right, this one is from Julian. Also on Warfianism. Hi, R&D. The talk about Warfianism, which I was introduced to as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, piqued my interest as someone who has studied linguistics. I've always been fascinated by thought and language and the way they interact. All I have is a 10-year-old, mostly useless college degree to show for that enthusiasm, so I get a little giddy whenever the opportunity to discuss it comes up. There are two versions of the hypothesis, the strong version and the weak version. The strong version states that language determines the thoughts you can think, and that has fallen almost entirely out of favor. It's just too easy to disprove. The weak version states that language influences the thoughts you can think. This is somewhat contentious, but both sides have staunch supporters. My take is that it's self-evidently false for the simple reason that thoughts are not in any language. I frequently struggle to express my thoughts to people because the process of encoding them into language is both slow and inaccurate. At best, it's an approximation of what's actually going on in my head, like trying to describe a Yodorowsky film in a tweet. Subjective cognitive philosophy aside, if the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis were true, we wouldn't see the level of creativity in making up words that we do. We have the constant churn of slang, we have jargon, we have niche words that go mainstream. A less navel-gazy objection. The simpler explanation for the correlation between a language and its culture is that culture constructs and informs language. A culture will tend to use and invert words that are relevant to them. Do the yupno think of the word as oriented around uphill and downhill? Yeah, probably. If they're presented with the idea of north and south, will they probably understand it? Yeah, they'll borrow or invent words in a couple of generations. They'll fall out of favor again because they're not culturally relevant. Ultimately, while I think the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis misses the mark, I do think it's it's onto something. It's not that language affects thought. It's that language affects culture and vice versa. It's a living thing, and it was informed by our collective thoughts and how we want to communicate and what we value. Oh, man. This is... I, I, I feel like... Okay. I have a couple of thoughts here with this, with regards to all of it. And again, yeah, I also have a 10-year-old, mostly useless philosophy degree. As, as we learned on a previous episode. Yeah, completely useless, actually. Um, just in general, it, it feels... Um, it feels right to me that language development has to do with your ability to obviously not just communicate, but but to form really coherent and abstract thoughts. Now, this is just based on sort of my my understanding of developmental psychology. But if a child doesn't learn language by a certain age, they they will have serious issues in life, not just communicating with other people, but also sort of performing certain mental tasks. Uh, so it does make sense to me that language development is actually a, a really crucial part of sort of 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 the ability of of the brain to completely make sense of its world, or or as much as humans can ever make sense of our world. Right? We're never going to be a hundred percent on that, or fifty percent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 getting a lot of thoughts here that are sort of conflicting with what I know about basic psychology and sort of basic developmental psychology, and and part of that uh, makes me feel like that that. Warfian hypothesis holds a lot of water. 
Uh, but I, I do also think there's relevant points about culture and a relevant point that uh, the first person brought up about sort of exoticism. Like, oh, yeah, what a cool idea. Like, we, I, I definitely had that reaction. Like, oh, wow, how wild, you know, the the tribe that thinks that fish have culture or, or you know, sort of the idea of like, oh, there's no word for blue in Russian. But, but yeah, people do kind of figure things out. Our species, our, our brains are pretty good at, uh, you know, getting it and figuring things out and figuring things out for our environment. So yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff swimming around here and I hope I'm not doing my, my, you know, 10 year old philosophy degree thing again here, but there's just so much mental fat to chew on here that I'm excited that people got into this. (laughs) It it (laughs) strikes me that like, okay, so yes, obviously like if a child is not taught language, uh, it creates problems for, uh, like for the development of that child. And it, it like, it doesn't surprise me at all that that also then makes it harder to perform certain tasks, uh, later in life. But it, like, that's because like language is a really useful tool, right? For like organizing our thoughts and expressing and our, our understanding of the world. If you're denied that important tool, uh, that, that humans everywhere have, have developed, uh, and, and somehow prevent someone from accessing that, um, Obviously, there would be there would be huge ramifications uh, for that. Where, where I think Worf, the the, the Worfian hypothesis probably goes really wrong uh, is is that ultimately humans are smart. They tend to be clever about how they use their tools. And yeah. where your language runs into a you know where, where your language sort of like hits its its borders, where it hits its limits, um, we tend to find ways to modify it. Uh, we, we tend to find ways to, like, as, as Julian points out, we, we, we tend to just sort of, uh, use that language in a different way to sort of describe these new thoughts, these new observations, uh, that we, that we formed, uh, you know, using, uh, that we formed sort of using those abstract reasoning processes, processes that don't necessarily unfold in like coherent thoughts. Um, Yeah. And, and so, I, I think that is where the, the where the Warfan hypothesis kind of um run runs into trouble because I do feel like there is boy like the Warfan hypothesis feels like it it always sort of felt to me like there is probably some sort of like Orientalist Orient Orientalist uh like mindset uh mm-hmm. lurking behind it. Uh right. Yeah. That yeah. uh that, you know, obvious you know well, you know, these people with this, with a certain language, they can't, they can't even pro, they, they can't even have certain, certain thoughts because their, their language has these limitations. Eh, probably they find, they could find a way to have those thoughts, you know, they if, if they were, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, like I, I love sort of the way Julian closes this, which is like, they do affect the thoughts you have. And that like, once you say it's, once you say it's a cultural thing, once it, once you say like language informs culture and culture informs sort of the way you approach the world, uh, then I think it starts to make a whole lot more sense. And that's, and that is why, again, like this thing tended to crop up more, uh, like in classics where there's this kind of, where you get these two really like in some ways similar, like Mediterranean cultures that end up going in completely different, like political, philosophical, um, historical directions. And the way we interact with both of those is through these two dead languages, uh, basically. 
And of course that, that, uh, hypothesis would exercise this, this huge fascination. What interests me though is like that sense of exoticism to a degree. There's this really like, there's that, there's this ugly American aspect to it. This, this, the like Orientalism has, has fallen into huge disfavor for, for a lot of good reasons. But at the same time, sometimes I wonder if preserving that sense of exoticism doesn't also help a culture be more open-minded towards others. Like Herodotus is sort of the, the original Orientalist, right? Like literally his history mm. is like the Persians and Greeks are totally different. What a weird world <laughs> it is outside Greece. Let me tell you all this crazy shit. And then what he proceeds to tell you is like 50% bullshit. But yeah. at the same time, Herodotus tends to be really open-minded about all this. He tends to be this observer who's going around like, whoa, your society's organized like this? That's crazy. Let me write this down. Uh, and it's weird. Like when Orientalism was at its like it sort of at its zenith, it's also core. It's also like it correlates with maximal European hegemony and like imperialism. But at the same time, like, I sometimes wonder if when you lose that ability to sort of be fascinated by the other, uh, like intrigued and excited by sort of the simplified, almost cartoonish version of the way other cultures live, do you also end up like, does that also shorten the the road to being close minded? Like, does, does that get replaced by something? Does that get replaced by a more earnest appreciation for cultural difference? Or does it get replaced by a sort of hand, like hand wavy, like, well, yeah, people are the same everywhere and it's, uh, sort of offensive to assume otherwise, but therefore I'm not going to think about or appreciate these cultural differences that do exist, uh, at all. And from that point, it's like, well, secretly we're all just Western capitalists anyway. Uh, I sometimes, you know, you know, I some, like that's. Yeah. I sometimes wonder about that. Like, if when you lose that, when you when you lose that sort of dumb appreciation for the other, uh, does some of the curiosity and open mindedness that comes with that, uh, does that also go by the boards? And sometimes, like, I look around and I feel like maybe it does. I actually had a ridiculously similar conversation about gender with my sister <laughs> driving down. Uh, to Rhode Island the other night, um, just in terms of, you know, I was talking about when I was younger, I was sort of like, man, wouldn't a genderless society be amazing? You know, like, like, God, it just gender causes so much pain in our world. It causes so much pain. It causes so much pain for folks who don't feel they fit in. It causes so much pain for, for, you know, traditional gender roles and so on and so forth. And, you know, and then I was kind of like, but then, you know, this is sort of a weirdly, you know, gross utopian view of things. And, like, people have every right to assert their identity and feel very strongly about their identities and to feel like, like, it's it's important that people feel comfortable being different. Like, that's actually a, a, an important thing in our culture as well. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily treated like an important thing, but supposedly it, it is something we're supposed to celebrate in American culture, right? Celebration of differences as opposed to you know, just the hand waviness, right? Just, uh, 
you know, having appreciation for other cultures and how other cultures and genders and other forms of identity make us stronger for having that diversity and make us stronger for having all kinds of different things happening and appreciate them and celebrate them as opposed to just pretending they don't exist and we're all kind of cut from the same cloth, basically. And I think if I'm understanding you, it sounds like, yeah, there's there's something to that as well. Like, there there's something to having identities and having appreciation for different identities, even if it is a little simplified, you know, or it is a little bit, it has yeah. been problematic in the past, kind of like, you know, the, the sort of, I don't think Orientalism is a good thing in any way. And I know you're not saying that whatsoever, but, but that there's something to appreciating differences and there's something to appreciating different cultures as being something that you didn't necessarily grow up with, but Hey, you know, it's really cool to learn about these things. It's really cool to learn about completely different perspectives and and why not get excited about that, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at is like the thing, at least like exoticism, like encourages you to sort of look at the difference um, because like people are sort of tickled by novelty. But yeah. I think if you take that away and nothing replaces it that like encourages people to have that same curiosity. Does it? Yeah. It, it sort of feels like it, it, it tends to lead to sort of an intellectual laziness where it sounds yeah. open-minded where it's like, yeah, people are all the same, but actually that's a really narrow minded view because what you tend what people tend to mean by that is like, not that we are all humans and sort of united in this commonality of humanity. Right. What it tends to mean is uh, me, you, people, from my experience, fundamentally, uh, going back to last week's letter, uh, fundamentally inside every Vietnamese is an American trying to right. get out. Uh, and I sometimes worry about that as well. Uh, but yeah. so, yeah, this, this just sort of, this sort of brought that up because I think like what, what I think something like the Warfan hypothesis is really useful at is not necessarily for its descriptive power about like cult like other cultures and things like that but just for how it forces you to think about ways language does inform culture way you way your own thoughts might be informed by the way you've used language throughout your life um yes and that's what i find really exciting about it and why i have this weird fascination with it uh and it's exoticism <laughs> it's it's really awesome and i and i really like this discussion and i will add this incredibly not intellectual point about it that i definitely picture mr wharf from star trek the next generation every time we chat about oh him. are you kidding no of course like <laughs> i mean i was actually like i looked up last week and i was like oh wait it's like wharf with an h oh damn because like, in my head like in my head like the little like the the, the like professor explaining this concept is is mr wharf Oh like, my god, yes. Just wearing tweed. It's what I believe, tweed. What I believe is that the <laughs> type of language you speak and its limitations <laughs> and its properties. Like, yeah, something like that. It'd be great. Um, so I think Mr. Worf would appreciate it if we went on to our weekend project. So, Rob, what are you watching or reading or listening to that is just blowing your mind with the same, you know, with the same ferocity of the Worfian hypothesis? Um, so weirdly, I ended up, uh, getting back into, um, it was a book I read in high school and just revisited again, um, The Cain Mutiny, uh, by, mm. by Herman Wook. I had forgotten how interesting the book was 
and how enjoyable it is. It's 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 just it's it's a fun book to read. But what really struck me uh, this time going through it is one like it's this amazing artifact of like mid-century American culture. Like again, the characters have a different way of speaking. Um, there's it's it's just clearly like it's a slightly alien place uh, and a slightly exciting place to to visit uh, in a novel. But the other thing that I find really interesting about this book uh, is that it's kind of aggressively self contradictory. Like, hmm. and I don't know. And and the thing is, like, either this book is horribly flawed. Um, well, I mean, it is horribly flawed in some ways, but. The thing I'm sort of left wondering is, does the book know that fundamentally it's incoherent in certain ways, or <laughs> is that part of the point? Uh, because, like, you go through these phases with these characters in this book that, like, you think they're completely right. They're, you know, they're, they're, com- they, they've got an accurate read on the situation. And then at the end of the book, uh, some other characters are introduced that sort of contradict everything and, sort of make you believe that what you've sort of invested in for the last 400 pages was all this crazy misunderstanding. Um, and the heroes of the story were actually kind of the villains all along. And what fascinates me about that is just at the same time, who's to say these later narrators are any more reliable, right? Like sort of the people sort of imparting lessons in the book um, are people sort of doing it away from the main action of the story? And I kind of wonder if, uh, ultimately part of, like, part of the point of this book is that, like, everything is sort of situational and contextual. Uh, and people, like, what is right changes, uh, based on, like, where you are, uh, at a certain time. And even your own actions will change, uh, based one, like once you're removed from the original context and you sort of return to sanity. So like the, the, the point of the Kane mutiny is that all, like it's, it's a, uh, book about, uh, this, this really crappy destroyer in World War II, uh, sent to the Pacific. And it's just this complete, like, decrepit Hulk. Uh, and it features sort of one of American literature's most famous characters, uh, Captain Queeg. Yes. And uh, it's sort of told through the eyes of uh, Ensign Willie Keith. And he is kind of this shitty, spoiled wasp kid um, <laughs> who, in some ways, like this is a traditional coming of age story. Like he goes to, he goes off to war and returns a man. Uh, but the, sure. the more interesting part of it is, is that, like, along the way, he sort of gets swept up in, in this mutiny uh, against their captain. Uh, but also ends up going to like this really, the way I put it is that ship becomes its own world, right? And mm-hmm. when he's in that world, when he's trapped out at sea for months at a time, reality kind of bends and distorts for the people on that ship. And then when they return to port in the wake of this mutiny and are put on trial for it, um, they are sort of returning to the real world. And people are telling them like, what you did was wrong. What you did was unconscionable. Uh, you're actually the villains all along. And mm. the, and, and the main character ultimately kind of agrees with this. Like, yeah, I guess we were, we, we were pretty much the bad guys. We, we, we did kind of screw up. But what's already been established by that point is 
also like this is a different like the people telling you this you're having this realization because you've sort of returned to reality you've returned to like a normal situation where things are working as they should be but we've just spent spent this like huge portion of the book out in the situation where there was no higher authority to appeal to there was no help yeah um you just had the situation that was in front of you and in the in you know, as you're reading the book, it looks pretty cut and dried that the characters did the right thing in that situation. But it's it's just fascinating to see like how this book like continually sort of reverses its position. And by the end, it almost feels like have the characters really learned anything, or do they just think yeah. they've learned things? And I think if the book's ultimate point is that these characters have all grown and matured and these are the lessons you're supposed to draw, then I think the book's pretty huge failure. Uh, but I'm not sure that it is because the book has this weird irony to every aspect of it, uh, that it has a pretty dim view of its protagonists, uh, almost uniformly. And I kind of wonder if part of the book's point, and this is what I started to really identify with, uh, reading it, people don't really grow or change. Circumstances, they just, like, they sort of react to their circumstances, but then they construct narratives that they think they've grown and changed. Mm. Uh, and that's what I found kind of fascinating. So it's, it's weird. Like I ended up revisiting this book and just really, really enjoying it, but also sort of marveling at how gracefully, uh, gracefully incoherent it's, it's messages. <laughs> um, and I come away with it. Like I come away from it really enjoying what it does and the story it tells at the same time. Like I was reading some criticism and like, you know, there's an argument to be made. Uh, I saw it like the, the new politics or something like that, where this is sort of one of the first neoconservative novels uh, huh. and is actually sort of a foundational work of this myth that like uh, a mil- American uh, militarism is a force for righteousness and good in the world. Uh, and there, you could make that case. Uh, but I also think the people, the person making that case in the book is also uh, pretty flawed. And yeah. uh, so it's just, it's interesting how many ways this can be interpreted because fundamentally, I think the book tends to be very realistic about people's capacity to change. That sounds amazing to me. I, I, I love a good sort of contextual morality play and I love a good rip the rug out from under you kind of narrative in terms of morality and character. So that sounds pretty rad. I might need to read that once I finish. Well, I guess I suppose I have finished although i keep forgetting that i've finished because it ends on such a whoa what the hell note i watched the first season of the magicians rob yes and oh my god i was in love and i marathoned it as i i tend to do when i really love something um okay so here's my history with the magicians a few years ago like i believe actually the year it came out i read the first book and i really enjoyed it i hated the protagonist Quentin Coldwater, because he's just kind of a self-obsessed prick, um, which is kind of the point. But yes, it, he was really annoying. Uh, but I really loved the world, and I really loved most of the other characters, and I really loved the sort of presentation and the, um, you know, sort of the idea of, I guess I'll go very, very briefly. It's about uh, magic is real, and there are these young adults who go to a basically magical academy, and a lot of people kind of call it Park Slope, Harry Potter, you know, that that sort of thing. Like, a little bit more grown up, but very much kind of the, the, the general structure of the story is not too far off of Harry Potter. You know, that kind of thing. A magic academy, you know, a young person finding their way in the world and, and magic, and there's an evil guy. You know, 
whatever. Uh, but it is much more self-reflective and adult. Um, and the the main character is really kind of purposely unlikable, I think. Uh, either that or Lev Grossman has a really hard time writing likable main characters, which after reading Codex, which I mentioned on an earlier podcast, I, there might be a case for that too. <laughs> he might just write pricky privileged adolescent guys and that's his thing i don't know you know <laughs> anyway uh the show is fantastic and i think a great deal better than the book in a lot of ways pretty much every change that they made uh to to the characters it felt like a very positive change um the first book julia who is basically the other protagonist in the series in the tv series barely shows up at all and quentin doesn't really give a shit about her um, I know she shows up in a few contexts, but it's not nearly as important and, and she's not nearly as, as sort of front and center as she is in the show. And I really, really loved her character on the she's show. Sort I don't of necessarily in the love the book, right? I believe so. I actually haven't read the second book. My understanding is that the show kind of it. slams yeah. together the first two books. Um, okay. in some weird, it's like, like basically the correlation between the the book and and the show um it, it it's it, the show made a lot of changes and it yeah it, and, and and went to some weird places i think because of it but yeah for sure i mean i um i don't know if i love all the things that happened in the, the sort of last episode um i i don't know that i love well here's here's our whole thing with content warnings and spoiler warnings, but um, I don't love that there was sexual violence in, in the way they presented it uh, on the show. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. I don't think that was the strongest choice. Whereas I thought it was a very strong choice to make Julia a second protagonist and kind of have her learn magic her own way and really have to be so much tougher and so much scrappier and make much worse sacrifices in her life to learn magic. And she feels it's her calling. She feels she needs to do it. And she really goes on like a hell of a journey. And I, and I thought that storyline, at least until the end was awesome and amazing uh, and, and really cool and such a great addition and counterpoint to the sort of Quentin story uh, where he's kind of the least interesting person at this magic academy. Uh, you have Penny, who's kind of like a punk, who was really kind of just an obnoxious jerk in the books. But in the show, he's probably my favorite character. Oh, really? He's kind of, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's just sort of a dick in the books where he's just, I don't think, he, I don't even think he's really a traveler in the books. I mean, again, I, I, I could be recalling things differently, but his his experience of magic is so much more interesting and uh, complicated and complex in the show whereas in the book it was he was just kind of this other guy he was kind of this dick roommate you know I, I'm as not opposed sure he was to like a cool person in the show man like the the show like he was so one note it was just like oh i'm angry i can't stand you guys oh <laughs> and that was just like uh we got it penny like can you get out of the can you get out of elliot's way please can we just can we get back to the the good <sighs> character getting out of elliot's way oh well okay i i think that's that's va certainly valid. He is a little one note, but I I I like that he was a traveler, and I like that he had this really complicated relationship with the girlfriend, and he he really loved her, and they had this weird thing going on, and and he cared so much, and 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 his favorite object was the was the you know the chocolate wrapper, and I don't know there was there was a sentimentality to him that I liked. It was very much the he's tough on the outside, but he's like a softy on the inside kind of thing, and. He's also really hot, and maybe that helped him along a little bit, too. But he's, like, ridiculously attractive. Um, speaking of, so is Elliot, the amazingly flawed but human and 
and incredibly, incredibly. Oh, he's so beautiful and sad. Beautiful and sad, and and the way that Elliot constructed his identity and the way that he reveals it to you throughout the show is just, it's heartbreaking and beautiful. And my God, and the character of Alice, who is you know actually fairly close to what she was in the first book, uh, you know the the girl who is so much better than everybody else at what she does, and but is also so insecure and so unsure of herself, even even though she is definitely the best magician by, like, ten light years out of all the characters in the books. Like, she's sort of an inversion of Hermione, you know, in, in a lot of ways, but it, it, so much more interesting as well. Oh, God, I just love the characters on this show, and I love the structure of the show. I love that they did the dual protagonist thing, because, honestly, Quentin is just such a unlikable guy and they did actually make him a lot more likable than he was in the book in the book he was 17 years old when it starts which is never it's never helpful (laughs) when you have an actual adolescent yeah in the in the show at least he's in his early 20s and uh they they sort of aged up everything it was a college in the book but it's a graduate program in the in the show so it feels a little less juvenile in in some ways uh, maybe not the party scenes. <laughs> those those are definitely right, it's like- definitely still very like that's that's the frustrating thing for me is like yeah. it's it's sort of grad school, but it's not really because like everyone like is basically in college behaves that yeah, way. Yeah, they they act like it and they drink so much. Like I couldn't stop pondering this as I was watching the show. I was kinda like, how do these people drink this much and they don't gain any weight? Like that that's the real magic yeah. that's happening on the magicians, yeah. you know? Um, like that was the oh least God, believable so thing. Many good bits though. The, the when they yeah. when they're making gin. And, oh yeah. Oh god, and they get a gin. Oh, it's they get a shit. gin. It's the best. And the the greatest pun in yeah. that show has to do with that gin and a knob licking joke. I mean, it is just um, like, oh, <laughs> you can get away with that kind of shit when you have magic. But you know, it was just very yeah. The, very playful. The, the problem I have with that show is like I feel like a lot of the characters are kind of archetypes in the way like we can describe them. And I'm not sure yeah. a lot of them are taken beyond that. Like why I love Elliot is because as more is revealed about him, I think he does change quite a bit. Like not not in the like, oh he's got a crusty exterior but he's a softy on the on the inside. Or like right. Quentin's like, oh he's kind of a entitled jerk, but he's sort of self aware about it in the end and does care about people. Like Elliot in his sort of beautiful self-destruction over the course of that show, um, it's just, he is, he is so sad and such a prisoner of his own charisma, uh, that it's, it, it's just fascinating to watch, um, watch him sort of break down over the course of the series, but also like, he, you know, increasingly embrace this really nihilistic and hopeless worldview. Um, the other thing I really, really love, like, I hate the sexual violence at the end of the, at the, end of the yeah, season. Yeah, it just felt so gratuitous, but, honestly. But it set up one of my favorite beats, which is that yeah. Julia's major antagonist for most of the season, um, who's this, like, total, like, evil, evil witch, basically. Just a really, like, badass and bad yeah. uh, person. Yeah. Um, she's the person she calls. And she immediately comes and, like, takes care of Julia. And I kind of love this immediate, like, it complicated their relationship so much instantaneously and, like, encapsulated, like, their disagreements had 
like boundaries, right? And yes. like ultimately, yes. like they were they could be really shitty to each other, but when the chips were down, like this antagonist was also the person, like the person that had your back. Um, yeah. I actually that was beautiful. I really yeah. liked that, like the the horrible like rape scene sort of sets up uh, a great scene between two women, um, yeah. which which was good. Ultimately, I think my, my major issue with the magicians, though, is it feels like a lot of plot, 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 and not a ton of earned character development. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's what bugs me. And I, like, I, I, I don't think it, basically, I don't think it compared well to a series that finished just before I watched The Magicians, uh, The Expanse, uh, which oh, is yes. a lot of yes. plot, but also a lot of deepening characters uh, as yes. well. Yeah, I I completely agree with that assessment, and I and I just coming from the the one book that I read, I I felt that way about the book as well, and I also felt that way about like the in the book the characters are intensely dislikable, like it's or unlikable. Sorry, not dislikable. <laughs> I guess yeah, whatever. They're unlikable. They're jerks. They're they're shitty adolescents and they're shitty like overprivileged adolescents and that's just not that much fun to actually, read about anymore. Actually, dislikable you know? is the better word for it cuz it's not that they're yeah. unlikable. Like you can't no, like actually you were, we're able going to dislike with them really intensely. Like it's not you can't bring yourself to like them. You can actively bring yourself to fucking hate them really easily. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Let's go with that. Um the changes that they made were were smart in in terms of making those characters at least tolerable like quentin is at least somewhat he's not tolerable but he's better like he at least shows some care for others in his life in the show where in the book i remember a passage that will never leave me of just what an asshole prick he is where he has an unpleasant memory at one point about crying to his mother about an action figure when he was a little kid or something. He's so disgusted by this memory. And I'm kind of like, dude, if you were four, it's fine. Like, what? Just, just what an insufferable prick who, like, that's what he goes to. You know, like, what a terrible memory. And it's like, first of all, that was your first, that was your problem. And second of all, you you feel so bad about being emotional and having a connection to your own mother that you you hate yourself for it. Like, shut up. It, it, like, Alice has a reason to dislike her parents, and, and that's gone into in the show and in the book. But she at least shows care to, towards them. And Quentin in the show shows so much more care towards his family than he ever does in the book. In the, in the book, he's honestly just like, whatever, like just such a prick asshole thinks he's too smart for the world now in fairness i went to high school with so many quintons it's not even funny and so maybe i'm a little sensitive to it to the to the adolescent male prick who who never thinks another person is a human being um that's an archetype i just have no patience for so i had a little bit of difficulty with quentin um (laughs) in in both forms of the magicians but i i do think they matured him a bit and made him at least somewhat human uh, in in the series and that was a good choice (laughs) see i think but this is actually i think why quentin ends up being an effective character overall is that he is very aware especially toward the end that he thinks he spent his entire life sort of believing like a lot of uh, entire a lot of nerd fiction. Yeah, that somehow yes, they're yes. going to be the hero, and 
he does a lot of shitty things sort of under this belief that like he's finally been singled out for being special, blah, blah, blah. And where he begins, like, sort of, like, the, the, the Rubicon that he has to cross is to realize, like, he's not special. Like, he's not yeah. better than or somehow above, like, the people around him. A lot of them are actually better than he is. Um, and sort of coming to grips with that. Like, that's an interesting, like, character development. Uh, an interesting struggle. Uh, so, I don't know. Like, he, he's, he's, a, he's a dislikable character. Uh, but I think yeah. toward the end, they at least started develop that character in some interesting ways yes uh in an actual character development not the really shabby uh sort they'd done um earlier like trying to sort of get that romance going between him and uh and um yeah, what's alice alice uh i kept want to say hermione <laughs> um, yeah no yeah. i know she's she's pretty close yeah. uh yeah, I was so the whole time I was watching, I was like, "Oh man, how are they going to do their first sex scene?" Because they they have sex as foxes for the first time, yeah, and they weird. totally do it like the way they kind of happens in the book. And I was like, "Good for you, sci-fi." Yeah, rad. You know, <laughs> it's like this whole weird sequence of things that happen there. I also just really liked the world oh, that yeah. they set up. No. It's it's really really a lot of fun to uh to kind of imagine this world where yes it's, it has the sort of harry potter aspect of like wow the world but magical um but but also with that kind of really dark edge of like yeah every time something happens it's because it's because you were hurting it's because you were emotionally hurting for something or or, yeah. or trying to do something beyond yourself like everything comes with a price and that's a really Really awesome little metaphor, Which I think. Which is why Elliot is secretly the most terrifyingly powerful of any of them. Yeah, exactly. He's in so much pain. He could probably, like, bring down the, destru- the destruction of the world or something. Like, he... Well, like, he kills someone with a flick of the finger. Like, it's... Yeah. Like... And when you realize, like, later, like, how hard it is to actually do harm to anyone magically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Elliot becomes an interesting and scary character. Anyway, we can talk about this all day. Uh, yeah. But... <laughs> Uh, at this oh, we point, we basically, we basically <laughs> spoil the shit out of the series for anyone looking to get into it. Uh, yep. Although we actually haven't even talked about the Beast, so maybe we haven't. Um, yeah, see, there you go. There's the big spoiler. Yeah. And oh, so man. Okay. Oh, man. The episode, uh, The World Within the Walls. Uh, oh, oh, God. God. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, that yeah, killed me. I, I think I have some major problems with that series, but ultimately, like, it was a hell of a ride, and I, I really yeah. encourage people to watch it. And I'm very excited for where they go next with it, for sure. Because yeah. I think they're in pretty much new grounds, if I understand correctly how the book series are going. So, on that note, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show, if you're having fun listening along and writing along and thinking about the Warfian hypothesis with us, or not, either way, uh, please do take a moment and consider reviewing us on iTunes or just spreading the word to friends, family, pets, whoever you think might enjoy this show. No joke, my pet loves this show. He's really into it. Anyway, uh, it, it helps us out so much. It means the world to us. And we thank you very, very, very much if you have taken the time to do that. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Cool.
Cool. 